Welcome to the Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasno. Today on the podcast, I welcome my dear friend, Danielle Laporte, or DLP, as I've been known to call her from time to time. Danielle's work urges us to leverage the genius of the heart to create the conditions for healing, not just for ourselves, but also for the collective. Her marvelous new book, How to Be Loving, is a nuanced guide, five years in the making, on the life-changing power of self-compassion and shadow work. You can find it at daniellaport.com slash how to be loving. There's also an accompanying journal and 70 card deck of deep teachings, which she considers to be resilience tools that we can all use to become more open to love and living a life from the place of love. Okay, so in this episode, she assures me that yes, it is possible to love one's own notoriously naughty ego, our little selves, which I am taking on as a personal challenge. We also discuss how to find pause during conflict, particularly with our loved ones, long enough to respond and not react and respond with compassion. And we touch on the topic of poetry and how poets have an almost impossible task of trying to solve the insoluble, to put words to things that can only be felt. Mm. And from time to time, how they tap into the mystical interconnectedness of life. So if you're interested in going deeper with Danielle Laporte, go to onecommune.com slash desire map to take part one of her Desire Map course, free for 10 days. This program will help you discover your core desired feelings so you can set goals based on how you want to feel versus what you think you should be striving for. And please support this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review on your favorite podcatcher. A brief production note, for the first 10 minutes or so of the interview, it sounds as if a digital gremlin is playing the maracas every time Danielle speaks. Uh, we kick him out of the band after the first song, but you'll have to bear with him at the beginning. So thanks for your patience. Without further delay, I present to you, Danielle Laporte. Welcome back to the river of the Commune podcast. Always a good day when we're hanging out. Always. It is a good day. Um, a day of attunement as we've rebranded Yom Kippur this year. <laughs> uh, no offense to my Jewish friends. Congratulations, first off. Um, I know what the gestation period looks like when you're um, putting a project together and um, every project that you embark on is done with such care and passion and attention to detail and beautiful design. Um, and this one um, is no different. So well done. Thank you so much for doing it. Thank you. Thank you. Um, 
and I was thinking about trying to sculpt this conversation uh, in the same spirit as the book, How to Be Loving, um, where there is mu as much salience in the sound of the words as their meaning. And uh, let me just color that for a moment. I read most of it and listened to all of it, probably twice. And, uh, and I recommend that, that everyone experience it the way that they choose to experience it. But, um, but I highly recommend listening to it. And I've told you this many times before, but your, your voice is this fertile, lush prairie, <laughs> like both dense and airy. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, there was many times um, experiencing the book where I actually stopped listening to the words as abstractions, as symbols for something else. And I was, I found myself listening to the book as music, listening to it with my heart and not with my discursive brain, you know, taking down notes, being like, oh, that's a good one. You know, there's plenty of that's a good ones. Lots. I mean, and I have a lot of them written down. But in many ways, the words became non-representational. And it was just the feeling of the words. And, and in a way, uh, I believe that that's very true to the... Uh, the spirit or the underlying substrate of the book, not really as a, as a guidebook, but as a love letter, as an exhortation uh, into the soul. So I, I wonder how you landed there on that approach. And I know that being a poet is quite natural. It's a natural proclivity for you. But how did you think about this more as a love letter, uh, an exhortation to move from the ego to the higher self, and not just a, a, like a self-help guidebook. <laughs> Can you unpack that for us a bit? Thanks for all of that. Mm. Um, I felt, feel about how to be loving the way I feel about my everyday life, which is like the urgent, urgent, like let's get together. People are suffering. I'm in a bit of pain. Let's get out of this pain. We have other choices. And I also feel 100% chill. Hmm. It's okay. There's meaning. Things are unfolding. There's a divine hand. But where? But there is a middle part of the sandwich, which is hmm. we can go kicking and screaming or we can dance a little more. So it's like, it's urgent and it's inevitable. We have a choice and it's choiceless. It's, it's really, and, and, I, and I use the word creative tension so intentionally. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is the great Tao. <laughs> Without tension, there would be no relaxation. We only know one in, in, in relation, um, you know, to the other. And uh, while there's an urgency, like you say, there is also a letting go. Um, 
and uh and this is i think the feeling that the book uh conveys um so beautifully um in many ways all of us that are committed to the examined life and to having conversations like this and to embarking on projects um in some ways we're all poking at the same thing um how do we move from fear to love from shadow to light from the feeling of a separate self to a feeling of integrated connection from the feeling of an ego or a little self to a higher self i think one way to help people or to um to uh, verbalize um, this is to unpack this idea of the ego. How do we recognize it within ourselves? So maybe you could spend some time um, sharing how you understand the ego. Well, I love my ego way more than I used to. And that has helped in how I identify the ego and I see when I'm in it and when I'm not in it. Because my old experience used to be like the ego is something I need to repress and I've got this dark side and I need to get on top of the ego, control my ego, not be too big for my britches. I need to be more pure of heart. All this purification stuff. You can, we can hear the Catholicism in it, right? And then, you know, with some mystical research and my own common sense, I figured out like, wait a second, I made the ego. It's my baby. Why would I want to leave it on the deck? Why would I want to neglect it? I made it. And then also there's some surrender, which is I'm here in this dimension. There's duality. I should learn to get along with my ego. I think the ego, how I define it now is it's an exaggerated sense of separateness. So I know when I'm in my, when I'm coming from my ego, really just fear, I'm, I'm pushy, I'm emboldened, but I call it sexy. Um, I'm righteous, but I say this on behalf of love. <laughs> Here's all the things you did wrong, but this is so we can move forward together. It's, there's a push. So there's, it really feels like me versus other plus. When I'm in my heart, I am so interested in you feeling good. I'm interested in your nervous system, actually. And I don't neglect myself, but I want... You know, sometimes when I look at my man, I think, oh my gosh, I want you to heal as much as I want me to heal. There's no ego in that. There's just, you matter as much as me. In fact, sometimes maybe you even matter more than me. And I feel really swept away in the best way. I feel really kind of selfless. And I want to get even more mystical, which is, you know, so many great teachers say, like, the mind itself is ego. That's it. It is designed to desire. And if you have desire, you have aversion. 
If you have desire, you have a me and a you. And that's problematic and amazing. I've often thought that we're in some manner pre-programmed to develop an ego just by yes. our mere sensory instruments that we're born with. You know, we're expelled from the womb and our eyes begin to focus and we develop auditory capabilities and we, we are taught to label things then, uh, you know, largely in the foreground of our experience. And it starts in a very prosaic, innocuous way, like, oh, there's, you know, our cat, and there's the fridge, and there's a car. And then, you know, over time, it becomes, well, there's another person, and then there's another person with a different sexual orientation, or a different political affiliation, or a role in society that might be greater or might be more appreciated than mine. And in that labeling, inherent to it, is a self-labeling. And then we come up with this symbol that we have for ourselves, that we populate with all these roles <laughs> called the ego. But I think the twist that you put on it is, is, is fascinating because there is a, there is a, a sort of trope of like eschewing the ego and we'll be good, you know, uh, transcending the ego and we'll be good. But I think what you're saying is that if we can witness the ego part of ourselves, the unhealed part of ourselves, as you call it, um, we know that that is the, exactly the thing that is looking for the love. <laughs> and, uh, and you do such a beautiful job um, cultivating that soil and, um, and marrying it with this idea of acceptance, of accepting ourselves and who we are. I want to, um, when I was reading the book, I, um, I came across this poem. I'm sure you know it. I want to read it just because uh, I had it. I used to have this memorized, but it's a Rabindra, Rabindranath Tagore poem. I'm sure you know it. I came out alone on my way to my tryst, but who is that that follows me in the silent dark? I move aside to avoid his presence, but I escape him not. He makes the dust rise from the earth with his swagger. He adds his loud voice to every word that I utter. He is my own little self, my Lord, and he knows no shame. But I am ashamed to come to thy door in his company. Um, and of course, Tagore is, is talking about the ego there. Do you feel that we should be ashamed of our ego? No, but we are. Hmm. The, the most growth, the biggest leaps I've taken have been when I've loved the part of myself that I've hated. Like, and, and not just, and it's not just conceptual of just like, oh, I can be arrogant and I can be manipulative. It's like, I was arrogant and I was manipulative. And, you know, in this line of work, 
I was arrogant in front of a lot of people and I got paid for it. <laughs> There's a <laughs> and, reinforcement there. Yeah. And yeah. so like it's for, for me, it's actually some speaking gigs that I've had where I just like, can't believe I said it. Can't believe how I said it. Can't believe when I said it. And they're, they're just like, oh, wince. And it's taken some years, like I'd say four years from like one gig where I just like, I had to keep bringing that in. And, and it's so practical. Like I see the incident in my heart and I, and, and I talk to it and I change my tone. Like the tone originally is like, can't believe you did that. Cannot do that again. Got to get that in check. Look at all that. And then all the you know, all the psych 101 that I know how to apply. That's from my shadow self. That's the wounded stuff. But guess what? You're still not there yet. You can analyze it to the max. You still haven't transformed it. You're just kind of pawing at it until I go, oh, I love you anyway. I love you anyway. I love that arrogant, fragmented part of myself. I love the incident anyway. And I got to keep working with it, working with it, working with it. And then my, how my mind reacts to physical pain has been a huge teacher with this kind of act of love. So like I had a chronic situation that was really painful for a while. Hmm. Now I believe that all pain, emotional and physical, it's a messenger. That's all. It's not even in some ways, and this is getting really esoteric. It's not even real, but it's coming to say something to me. So I have the physical pain. Some, I don't even know, what are you trying to say to me? But I don't want you in my life. Push away, push away, not embrace. Okay, Danielle, use your medicine. Engage in friendship with everything. My arrogant move, my physical pain. Okay, this is it. This is the word. I'm rolling up my sleeves. And I say to my physical pain, I give, I give it the basics. Um, you're here to tell me something. Oh, yeah, okay, today I can hear the message. It's slow down, it's be gentle, it's something. I can't hear the whole thing. I have to leave lots of room for mystery. And I say to my pain, my pain starts to calm down or my frantic mind calms down. And I say, even if you come back tomorrow, I'll love you. It was the most, it's the most unconditional thing. It's the, it's the sweetest move I could make. Like I, my dear pain, I am vast. You can come back tomorrow and I'll be here. Mm. I think that's the most powerful thing I've done in the last two years mm. in my bathroom crying, <laughs> you know, just like, I got you. I'm vast. I'm that, I am that loving. I can have a conversation. I think a lot of transformation happens alone in the bathroom crying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you talk uh, about a story in the book where um, you're walking, I think in a park with a friend who has a penchant for uh, passive aggressiveness and uh and you're in a state that's uh, where your cell receptors are open to this passive aggressiveness. 
and um, she says some offhanded comment. And, um, and you're ready there, you're poised, and then you find, I think what you, you said, that you paused instead of pouncing and that you were able to tap into the, your higher self to find a connection with that person and ask yourself, why is she so hurting? What is the pain in her life? And I thought it was a beautiful, I mean, just very simple um, uh, example, but that's the way quotidian life is. It's full of simple little things. And uh, can we punctuate our quotidian life with that ability to move from the me to the we, right? And ask ourselves, like, what's, what's going on um, with this person that she has this proclivity to make these passive aggressive comments towards me? I thought it was just, it was a brilliant little moment in the book. <laughs> the move was first about myself before I could make it about her. So before I got all loving and enlightened, say like she's got some unhealed stuff that keeps coming back and she's been in it for a long time. And this is, you know, why she can talk to me the way she does is, and this was so simple and this ties up, this brings us into like Buddhism and poetry. We're in the park, we're doing our dance of passive aggressive. And the pause came from, I looked at the sky and I remembered the Buddhist metaphor that we are that vast. I am the sky. Now this is why poetry works sometimes because it like circumnavigates all of like, yeah, but she said, and I said, and my therapist said, right. They're just like, okay, Danielle, you're the sky. You are this vast. You are, your love is this big. I relax. I'm not, I'm not bracing for impact. And then once I, I had correct identification, I am love. I'm love. I got this. She can do this. It's okay. Then I got to be like, oh, right, her pain. And, and I just put up with it that day. And I felt great. Like it felt, didn't even feel like a putting up with it. It felt like a holding. I'm going to hold her mood because I'm the sky. And that's just one small example of that normally would have turned into someone was going to take the bus home and it was going to take weeks to repair or I got expanded. They got listened to so much better. It was a bridge. Yeah. And what is the human condition, but billions of tiny little actions and decisions? Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is counter to boundary culture, right? Like mm -hmm. yeah. I'm all for boundaries. We have to have boundaries. My friend, Terry Cole has written a beautiful book on boundaries, helping people realize they need them and scripting them. And I think we have to do away with a lot of them at a certain point where they become barriers. So I could have gotten into that, she crossed my boundaries conversation inside and put up a wall. And just instead, 
we can just decide, I can take this. One place that um, the book really hit home with me personally um, was around striving. And um, again, this harkens back to the Bodhi tree, but, um, but one of the causes of inherent suffering is our proclivity to cling, to crave, to strive, to force, to interfere. Um, but striving is, is an interesting one because I really feel the need and the desire to grow. And, and I wake up and I'm like, okay, you know, what am I going to read today? How am I going to grow my basket of knowledge? And, uh, and you put it in the way that you frame it in the book. Um, and, 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 and the thoughts that it um, inspired in me is that like every natural system, and I'm very into the Tao and the course of nature, so I look at natural systems all the time, um, cycles you know, between growth and repair. So nature promises a spring with every winter, and we have wakefulness, and we have sleep, and we have cell growth, and you know, mammalian target of rapamycin pathways, and then, you know, all this kind of stuff with hypertrophy and all this stuff. But then we also have cell autophagy. We have cell um, repair. But we have so sanctified growth, and particularly, and this is the part where I was like, drop the mic for you, um, was you write that, we have this globalized economic system that relies incessantly on growth without rest and repair. And we hold ourselves as humans to the same expectations of that constant growth cycle. And we see what that, what that growth imperative um, yields in the world yet we put ourselves into that exact same uh, imperative. And boy, it really like hit me where I just said, man, Jeff, you've got to like let go of waking up with this feeling that I have to grow at all times because that is a reflection of the ego. Yes, I couldn't relate more. I have a question for you. If you knew that you were going to die in a couple of days, would you be concerned about growing? <laughs> it just occurred to me. No, right. not at all. I would be concerned with being as utterly present as I possibly could be to the precious time I would have here and with my loved ones and with the experience of this wondrous existence. Because I'm wondering, just, you know, in the conversation of like, if the obsession of growth has to do with our fear of death, like, it's like, 
you know, I want to stay young. I want to stay strong. I want to be knowledgeable and more robust and more fun, all those things, more capable, more capable. And, you know, last summer I found this incredible esoterica book. It was one of those moments in life. Like I was in the middle of a small town. I wasn't meant to go into this bookshop. It fell off, you know, it was a hundred, the book was a hundred. I walked into the bookstore and the dude at the front counter says, everything in the store is $10 today. And I was like, oh, okay, great. I walk to the very back. I put, pull out this book. It says rare edition, $100. And I'm like, is this book $10 today? Anyway, deep esoteric kind of, you know, brotherhood stuff. And I needed to know everything about it. I needed to know how, you know, flame works and in, in visualization and the pointed stars and all of that. And I realized this book was making me so anxious. Now, I, I think there's an actual energetic thing happening. I'm kind of immersing myself in this teacher's frequency. And it wasn't my heart that struggled with putting that book aside. It was my ego that struggled with it. I'm just like, mm. I am a slacker and there is knowledge that I need and this could help me manifest. It could help me heal things. And around the same time of deciding I needed to just go on a, a diet of all of it, I think I just really have reckoned with like, I am mortal. I'm going to die. I could die any minute. I've had some really, some close friends who I consider to be like really powerful healers, like truly sagacious. And they got knocked on their asses in the last few years. And I just like, you just don't know when the hand is coming. And I'm just like, I'm good. And I have infinity to get it right. And infinity is terrifying, terrifying. Hmm. Yeah. I don't know where that was going, but I've just, I've sworn off a lot of self-help and esoteric stuff recently. Yeah. I mean, certainly um, just to ground it in kind of my own personal experience, um, I f there's a feeling that I have to make up for lost time. Yes. And uh, if I try to do a proper sort of root cause analysis of that, yeah. Well, why is that? Well, because I don't know enough and I didn't devote enough of my early life to edifying myself or, you know, being fluent around quantum entanglement and uh, neuroplasticity and the epigenome and, uh, you know, whatever, all the things that I've missed. So now I've got to make up for lost time. But why? Oh, to because, appear yes. <laughs> fluent? I think we want to punish ourselves for being unconscious. Mm. It's such a trip. It's just so much more division. It's so unforgiving. It is so counter heart actually yeah. Yeah. yeah it's interesting um it, it's also it, you know reading the book also um i ask myself 
I try to witness where my ego is showing up, even in the most kind of seemingly selfless activities. And, um, you know, when I'm engaged in what I might deem acts of seva or selfless service, and I'm like, hmm, is it really that selfless, actually? Um, uh, you know, I think you have a phrase in the book that, or are we doing it to earnest divine favor with God? Um, you know, and, and I think these are the, um, when you talk about this transformation or this transition from the unconscious, to the conscious, it often it points us towards um, you know self inquiry, doing an inventory of asking ourselves why. What is my true underlying motivation here? Is it a heart centered um, motivation, or is there something else at play? Am I looking for approval? Or am I looking to impress? Or am I looking for some form of, you know, external approbation to address my own perceived uh, indefic- uh, deficiencies? I think another way of asking that is, is this coming from the, a place where I feel connected to this person hmm. or this situation? Or am I trying to rise above it, be outside of it? It's like, um, you know, I walk down my street. I, there's, I live in this sweet little cul-de-sac and only two blocks away, I can find 10 homeless people or 10 people living homelessly asking for money. And now my practice is with everybody. I just walk down and go, well, I'm you, you're me. I'm you, you're me. Hmm. Come from the same source. And it's had this really softening effect where I feel way less judgment, like what are you going to do with the money that you're given? Are you going to go get a hit or something? All that stuff. Got over that a while ago. But I also feel more relaxation with people's choices. Like, I don't know the growth that someone is getting from begging for money on the corner. That could be their bodhisattva move they could be enlightened and this is their suffering we all going to suffer in different ways because we're in this boot camp called earth but like maybe that's his thing and i actually can kind of i move into like wow entertaining some respect it's amazing yeah Hmm. Yeah, this feeling um that we have when the sense of self begins to dissipate um, and we feel connected and or interconnected. And that's really what it is. It is a feeling. And this is why I think your job is so difficult (laughs) because the poet is trying to solve an insoluble problem insofar that she is trying to say what cannot be said. Because the mystical can only be felt, this transition of the feeling of what it is like to be a separate self to what it is like to be one with the world, where there is only the world, um, that is 
uh, and there's there's a consilience around that feeling across every spiritual tradition and religion. Um, and of course, the great poets try to poke at it. And on a very good day, and you've had very many good days, <laughs> you give us a glimpse into that transcendence. But what separates a belief system from a mystical experience is sensation. And yeah. Well, I think when you when you tap into that, you're actually not feeling. You're in it. You're experiencing. Yeah. I'm experiencing interconnectivity. I'm experiencing the shimmer. And then we come out of it and we go, oh, that's what that feels like. Absolutely. Um, that was well qualified. Um, because, um, you know, Rumi has this uh, you know, wonderful poem, The Guest House, where you know, mm -hmm. he's talking about emotions as phenomena, sort of arising and subsiding in consciousness. They're uh, guests to a dinner party and they show up and they steal a bread roll or whatever they do and like, you know, scurry out the back door, or whatever. They come and go. And, but you are the house, you know, you are the sky, emotions are clouds, you are the road emotions and feelings are um, bicyclists or pedestrians, whatever. Um, but I think what you're talking about here is that um, connectedness and a, uh, this, this in itness <laughs> is really, it, it's almost visiting a state of being kind of the way you visit the United States or Colorado, if you don't have to go on an airplane to go there. It's just, it is, it's not something that visits you. It is uh, that it is a state of being in which you can inhabit that state of being on an on a temporary basis. And we're all trying to kind of maximize the, the, the length of this particular vacation. Um, but then you get spit out back into, you know, ego world of the 10,000 things. And, and, um, and, but, and, and, and this is potentially a transition into a, a large section of the book where you do, that you devote to virtue, but that state of being has a signature or certain characteristics that you can recognize <laughs> when you're there. You're like, Hmm. Um, you know, that, that was that. And so I get some love today. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, so maybe we could talk a little bit about virtue. Um, and, uh, because you, you spend, um, some time in the book dissecting, uh, seven virtues, um, love, compassion, wisdom, forgiveness, love and kindness, resilience, radiance. And, um, uh, but first, and I'd love to unpack how you understand each one of those things. And we don't have to hover on, on, on each one for forever, but maybe as a starting place, 
you could elaborate on how you actually understand virtue, because I think you have an interesting spin on the concept of virtue itself. It's for me, it's not a psychological conversation. So this is not about morality. It's not about ethics because those are even can be divisive. Those are constructs of the mind. Virtue is the higher consciousness. It's it. I like to think of it as divine love. We have these, these creative tensions, this magnetism, this, you know, this pulse of life. It is divine love itself. And then I see all the virtues as the daughters of divine love. So, you know, visually it's like divine love is the light. It's this sun and all those rays coming out of that unique unto themselves, individual virtues. And so you can be compassionate. It's an act of love. You can be forgiving. It's an act of love. It all, everything, everything high vibe gets back to the V vibe. I think this differentiation is important because we're living in an era where there's a lot of signaling around virtue. Yes. Um, Which I'm okay with, by the way. We need I mean, to be okay with what we judge as virtue signaling. Right. Can I, can I unpack that? Please. Okay. Your virtuousness is between you and your soul. It is not for anybody else to say where it's coming from. It is um, who can judge how you let the light of consciousness work through you. you. You can't. And the fact that anybody would stand up and say, that is not loving enough. There is a motive underneath that. That needs to be questioned in and of itself. Are you not loving enough that you can sit back not judge or just let it unfold as it will. I think when we, yes, there's some of us who have the lucidity, the wisdom to say, okay, that's performative. That donation is just for a tax write-off. They're just halo polishing. Sure. It's happening all the time. Let them do it. Let them do it. Because sometimes when we fake being loving, we start to realize what love really is. And I think with virtue, with, with consciousness, we're all playing with different degrees of consciousness. So like, you know, just, just play, just pretend to be compassionate. See what happens. See how it feels. And you go, oh, wow, cool. that kind of felt good. And I got a thank you note and I slept better that night. Okay, play with a little more. Oh, and then you will get, wow, I was faux compassionate. Now I'm really compassionate. And then I think there are some, there are, there are some of us who we just hit our strides with a particular virtue. And when you really are being the virtue, you don't even know. Someone can say to you, wow, you're so compassionate. And you, you know, and that person just kind of shrug and say, well, what do you mean? You're, they're embodied. Yeah, so enough with the virtue signaling canceling is what I'm really trying to say. Yeah, I mean, um, the Tao has a 
fantastic um, exposition on, on virtue. Um, mm -hmm. And really has a very, um, an understanding of virtue much more similar to, to yours, I believe. It's not tied to um, relative morality yes. or ethics. Really, they are states to be embodied. And most often, being virtuous is actually moving with nature's course. Uh, and there is a refined and intuitive skill to it. It's not just a complete surrender, though sometimes you can move down the river with greater ease if you just let yourself go limp. <laughs> but it is actually an application of the rudder such that, you know, you're leveraging nature's way down the course of life. And, uh, and the Tao says, great virtue, which is the de, the T-E in the Tao Te Ching is actually translated as virtue. But great virtue does not virtue signal. So it is true virtue. Cheap virtue, merely virtue signals. So it's not virtue after all. Great virtue is spontaneous. Hence, it is non-transactional. Cheap virtue is contrived and is transactional. This has been a powerful lens for me during this time because, you know, you and I and everyone, I mean, our lives are very public. Um, and, uh, you know, the Serengeti of social media is, <laughs> is cruel. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it cruel. Influencers and, are the new gladiators, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and, um, and so when I find myself, we, I mean, we have no choice but, into, to, but to be in nature's course. It's just happening. So, yes. I mean, and you say this, I, I mean, I, of course, when you write a book, it's yours, but then you like release it out into the world. People like me read it and it's not yours anymore. Now it's mine because I'm bringing my own, you know, thoughts to it. So I'm like overlaying, I'm sitting here reading your book and listening to it. And then I've got my tattered copy of the Tao Te Ching right here. And I'm like, oh shit, she's actually talking about the Tao right here. And you know, um, and so, I mean, I think you, you, you point to this in the book that we have no choice. I mean, we are in the current um, of life. And, uh, and, you know, are we going to swim upstream? And, um, and, and that's surely the easiest way to exhaust ourselves and to drown. Mm -hmm. Or are we going to become um, skillful in navigating nature's course and move with it. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, so, and, and there's great gratification in that. I mean, maybe we could talk specifically about compassion, for example, yeah. um, like what your understanding and experience of compassion is, because it's when you're there, it's, it is one of the most gratifying places to be. Yes, it's a miracle. I think compassion has a lot to do with mercy. And how I define mercy is imagine that you and Buddy commit the same crime 
and you get 20 years and you hope he doesn't get arrested at all. That's mercy. So it's like same degree of density and you pray that they don't have to pay the same price. You're just really wishing that everybody catches a break. That's mercy. There's no self in there. Yeah. Yeah, there's um, a uh, Sanskrit word, mudita, which um, is often translated as empathetic joy, but really the way I've understood it is the experience of joy simply for someone else's joy. <laughs> and... Um, and it's a very, uh, not that a spiritual journey deserves to be measured or gauged, but <laughs> sometimes I think about this and apply it to myself, where, you know, I see someone achieve something great. And what emotion comes up? Yeah. Am I just absolutely overjoyed for that person? Or is there a little voice saying like, <laughs> that's a projection of your unfulfilled potential like onto that person and I feel envious or jealous, etc. Um, but I, I think when you well up with joy or this also could be true for, um, for tears or pain to identify someone else's suffering as your own. Um, when you have that experience where you are crying for someone else's suffering or you're high-fiving and jumping up and down with joy for someone else's achievement, that is a reflection of connection, of compassion for me. I feel most um, expanded and just cool when I'm happy for somebody. Yeah. Yeah. Just like, I'm so happy for you. Yeah. With no strings attached. No strings attached. <laughs> no judgment in there either. Like, you know, my shadowiness and that would, would be like, I'm happy for you. And I hope you, you know, can keep it up because you could lose it. Or I'm, you know, just all those judgments. No, I'm just happy for you. And I have faith that your success is, Gonna expand you, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you talk about the experience of uh, interacting with someone who's homeless, for example, mm -hmm. and um, it brings up for me this word that I recently stumbled across called sonder. Very simple word, S-O-N-D-E-R. Um, it's um, the profound feeling of realizing that everyone, including strangers passing in the street, has a life as complex as one's own. <laughs> I was like, whoa, that's a good word. Um, let's talk a little bit about wisdom. Oh, I think you do um, a wonderful job dissecting the difference between knowledge and wisdom. So have at it. This helped me let go of my own morning time striving. 
anxiety mm. is to realize that wisdom has nothing to do with knowledge, acumen, resume, research or data. And that how you know a wise person or a wise decision from an unwise person or decision is wisdom will always include everybody. So wisdom is always coming to the table to say, okay, how can this benefit everybody or harm somebody? And that's how, you know, you go from there. It's really, I think like I would define divine love as the ultimate inclusiveness and wisdom is like, you know, the, the woman who's holding the statues of justice, the, or the scales of justice, you know, wisdom yeah. upholds divine love. Like, okay, everybody is in, and I'm here to make sure we all know that. Let us proceed. And it, and it can happen. We know when we're in the presence of a wise person. It's Someone can be simple. They could be working in a factory. They could be digging ditches. They could be a guru. It also helps you when you, you carry on with this concept of wisdom, the virtue, really helps you see when there are people we have put on pedestals, you know, for me, more spiritual folk that I think, Oh, that is not an inclusive teaching. Like, Oh, he was being a little divisive there. Oh, that's not wise. Got it. Check. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's completely not associated with, how many letters might appear at the end of your name. Yes. Um, or how many followers you have in your darshan, your temple, or your Instagram. That's right. Um, I think that um, there's a lot of humility that's associated with wisdom. Um, wisdom leads from behind. That's why yeah. it's just like, Myself is equal to yourself. This is not about my small self trying to get inflated. This really is like united we stand, divided we all fall. <laughs> like, I think that's one thing we, we lose in that concept. Like, united we stand. Yes, we got that. Divided we fall. No, everybody loses. And when you realize that, when you're wise enough to see, like, we only are going to get where we want to go together then it's not, you, you know, don't have this ideology. Like it's okay if they suffer a little bit and we've helped this community. Over. No, we all go. It's, it's what we're seeing online right now with what's happening in Iran. Like none of us are free until all of us are free. No, nothing true was ever said. I think. Yeah. I mean, so unbelievably inspiring what's happening in oh, Iran. It's fantastic. I mean, but look at the suffering involved in that uprising. I mean, this is a beautiful occasion, and this is easy to say from my apartment in Vancouver, but this is a beautiful occasion to see where um, the, the, the meaningfulness in the agony. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's often posited that... Um, Failure begets experience and experience begets wisdom, but only if you're humble enough That's to right. recognize the mistake, <laughs> because 
um, what's the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Well, the person with too much pride or hubris would, would double down and say, oh, well, I'm just going to keep doing it over and over again. But the wise person actually understands and acknowledges uh, his or her own deficiency or his or her own mistake and is humble enough to learn from it. Yes, wisdom is always integrating. Wisdom is not predicated on life experience. We all know people who have traveled the world, built businesses, all the things, and are still still ogres, right? Yeah. So it comes through, through love. So that learning from experience is an act of love. You bring the experience in. You apply some gentleness, it becomes a part of you. You mm. get wiser. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about forgiveness. Oh, okay. I think it's the reason we incarnate. I think we are here. I think we exist on this planet, in this dimension to forgive. Mm. And, you know, my favorite kind of phrase over the last year is, hey, everybody, <laughs> uh, the heart is for giving. And then you give it a nice poetic pause. And every, you know, you see the eyes light up, and they go, oh, the heart's forgiving, the heart is forgiving. And when we are not giving of love, when we are not forgiving, we are not being our true nature, we're in denial of our power. And that being the case, like, I think forgiveness is actually our default and we want to forgive. And I've had this experience myself where, you know, I was in a, I was in a car accident and it was the other guy's fault. My car was total and I walked away, but there's all these things to bring in like insurance and, and, you know, the person whose fault it is, their insurance goes through the roof and you know, it's not great. And I wanted to just let it go. I was okay. I was going to get a new car. Um, it wasn't going to cost me anything. It was all okay. And I just felt so soft and beautiful about that decision. And uh, then I let myself get talked out of it. And I just felt dank and ugly. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we talk ourselves out of things in terms of forgiving all the time because of the contract or what well, is one of my least favorite words now is like accountability. We're obsessed with count accountability. The ego loves accountability structures for ourselves and others. Yeah. Cause you're not good enough. You're not keeping up. You're right. You're wrong. You said you would do this and you didn't. And, uh, no, forgiving is so much more fun. Yeah. There's these, kind of transcendent examples of forgiving. I think that really, it tests us in a way. I mean, these families from the Nickel, Nichols Mine incident or from the uh, Dylan Roof um, killings in the church in South Carolina where these families all got up and, and, and forgave a mass murder. And more recently in, um, in Gabor Mate's book, um, he talks about this, uh, well, Edith Egger, she's a 
psychologist whose grandparents were killed um, in the Holocaust. And eventually she returns and goes to Hitler's hometown and, um, and forgives him. And I think this really, this really tests our mettle here around forgiveness. Now, yes, clearly forgiveness is a gift that you give yourself as much as it is a gift that you give others. It sort of uh, purges toxicity and anger. It's like, you know, who's holding the ember of resentment? Well, you are. You're getting burned. So if you can forgive, you just throw that away. But, uh, but there's a tension between forgiving and that notion of accountability or justice. So is everyone in your mind deserved of forgiveness? Yes. Yes. Everyone is deserved. We all come from the same source. No one is outside of the fabric of love. And... We live in duality. There is, um, we need to create conditions of healing. So if somebody is toxic and deranged, they are forgiven, they are loved, and they gotta go live over here so that they are no longer harmful to society. Like that's basically, you know, but everybody gets cared for. That person gets cared for in the forgiveness. The, and the community gets protected. Um, I think there is, there's a conversation around anger and rage, right? So there's a place for holy anger and holy anger is like, you are enraged on behalf of what's best for the collective. That, you know, for me, all children everywhere should be protected constantly, no matter what. And that should be number one on every political, educational, medical agenda without question. And I have a holy anger that that is so not the case. But that rage is on behalf of uplifting, protecting, compassion for humanity. Anger is, you did this, you got to pay. Right. It doesn't move us forward. Yeah, it's a crime and punishment mentality. It's a punitive mentality. And this speaks to um, kind of Abrahamic justice versus a restorative justice. Like a restorative justice would is much more focused on the harm that was done, on who was harmed, and how do we help make that person whole? How do we help the healing process? But uh, we're very much geared around kind of the crime and punishment of the, the person that has kind of deviated from the orthodoxy. And, and as you say, absolutely correctly, we have to separate people that are antisocial and who are a threat. Um, and at the same time, I think our culture would be better served if we were more focused on on the person that was actually harmed and then the redemption and rehabilitation, yes, rehabilitation. of the people that had done the harm. Yes. And um, this is the darkness of so much um, 
well as some of you know social justice movements and activism is it's really it's um it's unreined rage looking for payback mm. and that does not create progress as opposed to another option which is we have a vision and we are going to get everybody in line with this vision no matter no matter what we will not stop um, but everybody's included in this vision and it is a it's a forward motion versus let's just stand in the middle of this problem and duke it out you know yeah absolutely well that brings us i think to a perfect bridge into loving kindness Oh. What is loving kindness? They're all my feet. Uh, well, loving kindness is defined by Buddhism is a warm friendliness towards all things. And I think this is the most powerful virtue for self-acceptance and healing is that if you can just change the tone with which you talk to yourself, and how you engage with your fear. Like, you know, I write about in How to Be Loving, like, look, please, could we stop overcoming our fear or trying to overcome our fear? Let's have a loving kindness relationship with our fear. It's just asking mm -hmm. for our attention. This wants to be integrated, yeah. Warm, unconditional friendliness, yeah. One way that you describe it in the book is an active interest in others. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. I mean, I think we, we know it as metta, um, in Sanskrit, this sort of unconditional bringing forth of goodwill, um, and benevolent, but this, uh, I think the way that you point to this idea of taking an active interest in others, Hmm. That is very sweet. And it's, and you can see it in yourself. I mean, you, you, you can see when you're doing it. Yes. You can see at a party. Now there's a shadow side to this. There's, you know, there's fake loving kindness. Like I'm interested. I want to know your story. There's all sorts of personality defenses, defenses in there, but, um, don't you just love people who are interested in you? Doesn't it just soften you? This curiosity, like, we're all on the same page. What's your story? Oh, yeah, you melt. Hmm. Yeah. It's also a fantastic tool, not to feed the ego, but it's a fantastic tool for learning. Um, you know, we're both very friendly with Zach Bush. I saw him yesterday, actually. And um, he's unique in this way. And I've told him this many times, where he will be in a setting with lots of very interesting people and he's a very interesting person. Yeah. Um, but one of the ways that he grows is through active listening. It's very uh, apparent when he does it, he will be absolutely completely present for someone else. And I think this is why he's able to hold a lot of disparate ideas and thoughts is because he's constantly learning through his active interest. Mm -hmm. cool. Which I would say is constantly putting the small self on pause. Mm -hmm. So you're just saying to your ego for a minute, I'll get back to you in a minute. 
I'm going to step outside of my paradigm or my viewpoint and be big enough to entertain somebody else's. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Resilience. Not uh, what we think it is. <laughs> <laughs> it's not about being tough. It's not about being leathery. It's even really barely about being stronger. It's about flexibility and you can only be flexible from the heart. I mean, it's really the dynamic that we both just kind of mash together with describing an engaged listener is like, I'm going to be present with what is, I'm not going to judge it. I'm not going to push it away. I'm going, you know, actually my best story around resiliency has to do with this great learning with a shaman. We, you know, did this beautiful ceremony. I was in this very broken time of my life. I needed a, some protection. And he said to me, we bend so that we don't break. And I really got it. It was like, ah, I'm going to be more flexible. This is resilience. It's not fighting. It's not stating my case. It's not going to court. It's not, you know, all the survival mentality stuff. It's like, oh, I'm going to give a little. I'm going to listen a little more. I'm going to be open to this. And then, then you are officially tough. Yeah. I think the bending idea is, um, is pregnant. Um, I think you mentioned this in, in the book, but there are trees like uh, pine trees or spruce, spruce trees that uh, under the weight of snow, they, they bend and their branches sort of fold and they just shrug the snow off like it never happened, you know? But there's other trees like oaks that try to stand, you know, rigid and inflexible. And when they bear too much weight, they snap. And, um, and we see this, you know, um, all around us. You know, I think it plays out going to court. <laughs> one of my first early lessons as an entrepreneur is, you know, me going to my lawyer and saying, but it's the principle of the matter. And he said, Danielle, I have watched people bankrupt themselves and drain their kids' college funds because of the principle of the matter. Just, right. you know, the flex is let it go. Yeah. 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 Settle up. Maybe you're right. You probably are. But, you know, be like water. Yeah, this friend. is, again, the Tao. Never yes. resist. Take any form. Go where you need to go. Mm. And there is nothing more powerful. Mm -hmm. um, I have a, a, an annoying pastime um, that I'll share with you. Uh, I'm a relatively, I wouldn't call myself a slow driver, but mm -hmm. I just am not like an aggressive macho driver. I'm listening to a podcast. I'm in the flow. I'm kind of just going down the You're road, like a maybe. Road driver. Yeah, I'm like five miles over the speed limit. You know, to me, that's, you know, oh, like, know. okay. How does Skyler um, deal with that? Not well. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and sometimes the car behind me will get frustrated with my somewhat lackadaisical attitude towards driving. And um, they'll like lay into their horn uh, as if they're giving me an insult, you know, essentially. Like, it's like, F you. And then we'll pull up to a red light 
and you know that car will like come to my side you know ready to like you know flip me off or something like that and uh i will pretend that their honking was um was an acknowledgement that they know me somehow <laughs> and uh I uh, I then turn to them and I wave and put on a huge smile like the one you have now and wave as if they were like a cousin that I hadn't seen in a couple of years. And uh, I will say uh, they're just dumbfounded. They don't know what to do. And uh, in, in, I guess, a way, there's um, the best way to disarm an insult is to be unaffected by it. So <laughs> that's More than mine. unaffected. <laughs> That's loving kindness meets vaudeville. Yeah. Good. Yeah. There, there's definitely a, a vaudeville element to it. I feel like I'm a mime, you know, like, hey. Um, okay. Um, radiance. Uh, this was actually, um, it's not a virtue or a quality that I was as familiar with unpacking. So I had a really interesting experience learning about it. Can you share what you uh, have come to understand as radiance? Let's do what radiance is not. Radiance is not mm -hmm. showing up to shine and getting your glow on no matter what. <laughs> yes, you want to be the love in the room. You want to spin it positive if you can. But I think in the self-help space, uh, the glow can be a lot of ego. What radiance, I believe, as a virtue is, is it's, it's the fire. It's what's left after the fire. Mm. So all the masks get burned. All the ego rolls get toasted. And what are you left with? You. Just more authentic you, more gentle you, wiser you, more compassionate you, more I know what matters really now. You. And those people are radiant. You see. You, you know. They've gone through the dark night. They're on the other side. They do have that shine. And um, you can't put it on. It is, I don't want to say earned, uh, but there's some initiation involved for real radiance. Does the lotus have to come out of the mud puddle? <laughs> yeah, it does. So, yeah, I mean, my, I guess my question there is, does radiance have to be so hard wrought? Do we need as a, for our own growth, spiritual growth, for this transformation from little self to higher self, does that require suffering? Seems so, but, and I talk about this with radiance and how to be loving. Beautiful guru, a woman, Ananda Mahima says, suffering is the end of suffering. That took me a minute. When you really integrate it, like we're talking about wisdom, when you turn the pain into power, your whole relationship to suffering shifts. It's like, oh, I got something out of it. I was in the mud and I became the lotus. There's something amazing happening here. 
So you start to appreciate the alchemy that happens from the challenge. And I think the sweetness of that appreciation has you, you're less resentful. It dissolves your resentments towards suffering. And then you know what? <laughs> it's happening. It's going to happen. It seems to be, uh, we wouldn't call it universal necessary, it seems to be very earthly to suffer. So Alan Watts, there will always be suffering. Trick is to not suffer over the suffering. Mm -hmm. And I think some of us can reach a level of enlightenment and it may just, you know, there's little punctuated moments where a challenge can come and we can actually kind of get off on it. Like, oh, this is a stinger, but there's something in here. And I think what happens if we can do that is possibly not always, we can move through it more quickly. When we embrace the suffering, we actually suffer less. And it's empowering. It's really, you know, I'm not, Yogananda teaches this. Don't go look at, basically he said, I put it in Danielle terms, like, don't go looking for suffering. But when it comes, there's something to be celebrated. Mm. Now, there are lots of ascetics who go looking for suffering. And uh, I can only tip my hat in this lifetime. I'm, I'm not up for it. I thought I might be, but I'm, that's not my path. Yeah, well, it's one way that we know we're alive. <laughs> yes. It, 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 and this is definitely true in religious traditions that have all of these uh, absolutely ghastly yes. rites. I mean, I've seen like in Mexico, there's these women that like are crawling like on their knees down stone, you know, cobblestone streets, like appro approaching the Christ on the cross and they, they're bloodied. And, you know, this is, or yeah, the self-immolation or, you know, all of these, um, you know, traditions that, um, that invoke suffering. You and know, though, this is my theory on that, which is you can do that from, the shadow self, or you can actually be doing that from love. So, mm. you know, all sorts of rituals, let's stick with that one. You can have one woman doing that because she is really drunk on love, on the divine. And she wants to, um, she wants to expand. I can take this. I can do this. I want to transmute the pain. A woman right next to her could be crawling and saying, I deserve this punishment. I am a small self. I hope God, it, will I get what I want now? Will this earn me my way into heaven? Same actions, different motivation. Mm. I'm no longer impressed by a lot of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you're more impressed by the intention or the motivation yeah. than the act itself. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, Dostoevsky asked, are we worthy of our suffering? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, um, what is on the other side of it? And um, how are we able to um, channel our higher self? You know, um, there's this wonderful section in uh, Man's Search for Meaning 
where um, Frankel is taking Freud to task. And uh, I think Freud says something like, you know how to make all humanity the same? You know, you take away their food, you make them starve, and they all are reduced to the lowest common denominator. You know, this is how you level out all of humanity. And, uh, and Frankel kind of responds, he's like, well, that's a very nice idea on some velvet Victorian couch. But um, I've been in the camps, and I will say that nothing makes people more different than taking away all their food. Because there were those that hung on to the last possible um, natural right they had, which is, how will I respond? Am I worthy of my suffering? Who gave away their last shoelaces or crusts of bread? This is at least the way Frankel um, framed it. And uh, that um, differentiation has always really stuck with me. It's like, who are we when the chips are down? Um, hmm, anyways. Um, one of just the most wonderful experiences of how to be loving is um, the prayers that you weave into each section. Um, meditations, contemplations, um, words, just beautiful words at times. Um, and uh, I was hoping that we could treat anyone who's listening to that experience um, as just a sample or a window into, um, into the experience of the book. I would love to read something about beauty. Um, this is called The Beautiful Now. And it begins with a piece from St. Francis of Assisi. It was easy to love God in all that was beautiful. The lessons of deeper knowledge, though, instructed me to embrace God in all things. The most common counsel I've been given by great teachers essentially boils down to this. Leave the past where it is in the past. A strong mind focuses forward. I'd like to raise this even higher. A strong mind focuses forward by seeing the beauty in the situation. Always be seeing the beauty. Allow me to point to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 13. Everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. When you find the beauty in the ugly, you change the ugly into the beautiful. And this is the deep light work and it will require diligence. The people or the situations that repulse you create a loving thought. It might be like this. We're all from the same source. The agony in your body or in your mind, can you just feel one beautiful aspect about what you're going through? Maybe it's that you're slowing down or that you're more in touch with your body or that you're learning how loved you are. Maybe it's just that you're noticing the trees in a way that you never have. Switch the thought that spots the reason to be upset or repulsed and focus on the sweet 
in the bittersweet. There is always light in the darkness. You just have to mine for it, exalt, glorify, elevate, rejoice, exalt the beauty in all. This isn't always straightforward, but it is reliably alchemizing. When you identify the beauty in the ugly, what appeared as undesirable is now transformed into something that belongs. You have realized love. And from here, we create a more beautiful future. Hmm. Danielle Laporte, how to be loving as your heart is breaking and our world is waking up. This is a, a book that everyone needs to experience. Um, it's also a journal and a deck. Um, and of course, executed with your signature flair and design skill. Uh, thank you so much. I'm just so grateful to count you as a friend. Oh, it's mutual. Your, your respect is just a jewel in my heart. Yeah, thank you. Mm, to be continued. Thanks a lot for listening to my conversation with Danielle. Check out her wonderful new book, journal, and card deck, How to Be Loving, to practice being more receptive to higher guidance and to create the conditions for healing yourself and the world around you. Now, if you enjoy this show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. If you're a regular listener, well, you have a small sense for how much effort we put into this show's creation when we really do our best to keep sponsors to a minimum. So if you want to support our efforts, please become a member. Just try it out free for 14 days at onecommune.com slash trial. And if you're interested in going deeper with Danielle Laporte specifically, go to onecommune.com slash desire map to take part one of her Desire Map course for free for 14 days. Of course, feel free to reach out to me directly anytime I read every single email, much to my wife's chagrin. Um, my email address is jeffk at onecommune.com. And I appreciate suggestions and constructive criticism. Lastly, I would love to thank the folks that make this show possible week over week, including my brother from another mother, Jacob Laub, and Megan Stone, Violet Augustine, Ruby Foster, Emma Fretz, Silvana Alcala, and Ryan Tillotson. That's all from the commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and I am here for you. <laughs>